bringing you our latest series on navigating the energy transition, a podcast series where RBC Capital Markets experts and guest speakers share their insights on the latest trends and opportunities in energy transition. Good morning and uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for joining the session today. So this is uh, our ninth in our Navigating the Energy Transition series. My name is Biraj Bulgataria, and I cover the integrated uh, energy names for RBC. For those who haven't uh, listened in or, or watched before, once a month you'll hear from RBC analysts on relevant discussions uh, around the energy transition. We've talked about carbon capture, we've talked about hydrogen, the future of grids, et cetera, uh, and a bunch of other topics. Today we have uh, Dan Jeevans from Shell, who's the general manager of data science for a conversation on digitalization uh, in the energy industry uh, and its impacts on both the way Shell does business, uh, but also how it influences and impacts uh, Shell's approach to the energy transition. So it's gonna be a, a wide ranging discussion and we do want to make it as, as interactive as possible. So if you do have a question, uh, please submit it online and then we'll try and get to a few um, uh, at the end of the conversation. So Dan, uh, thank you thank you very much for joining today. Um, I wanna start with a, a fairly broad question just to set the scene and conceptualize some of the things uh, we're gonna talk about. Um, but could you talk a bit about some of the mega trends um, in the digital world currently and, and how these are driving or you know, impacting the energy transition? Yeah, of course. So firstly, just to say thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you and, uh, you know, look, really excited to, to talk a little bit about what we're doing uh, in the digital and AI space within Shell. Um, I think, you know, uh, hopefully everyone is aware that uh, if you look at the overall megatrends, there are really two that are worth calling out. Uh, the first is, of course, energy transition, the topic of this series, um, which is, I think, changing a lot of things very, very quickly in the energy transition as um, investor pressure, as also you know, societal pressure, and, and frankly, also the, the compelling need uh, to transform the energy system becomes clear to all of us. Um, and also, I think at the same time, we see an acceleration of digital technology happening very, very quickly within the energy industry. And actually, I think it's a very exciting time to be in the energy industry because these two things are coming together very, very quickly. Um, I'm a big believer that digital technology is one of the core levers that is going to help us navigate the energy transition and can have a material impact uh, on, on what we're doing. You will have seen as Shell, you know, one of the things that we're talking about is this strategy around powering progress, which is you know our approach to navigating these, these challenging waters. And I think... Um, Within that, you will have seen that digital plays a very key role in many different areas. And, and I guess the two that I want to call out, which you know you talked about the the megatrends. I think the first thing is uh, digital is going to be key in terms of helping customers navigate this energy transition, which is a core part of our strategy. But it's also going to be key to making the existing energy systems more effective and efficient. So let me just give you a couple of examples of that, and then I'll go into you know how we're doing as Shell on on this journey. I think the the first thing I, I want to say is that we're already working with our customers to leverage some of the digital technologies that we're developing within Shell to help them accelerate their decarbonization journey. And I get very, very excited about this. I think it's just uh, a fantastic uh, piece of work that we've we've started. And you will have seen maybe some of the things we've published recently, uh, working with customers like Dalmia Cement. Uh, they're one example where we're starting to apply Shell's uh, deep knowledge of 
you know, energy systems and the way in which energy is consumed in industrial processes and apply that now to customer operations to help them to decarbonize their operations. So just one example of how we're working with customers, but we're also doing it to ourselves. So it's not just about customers. We also need to apply this to our existing operations. Um, and I'm very pleased to announce being allowed to talk about this one for the first time. One of the things we've been able to do is, is work with some technology we developed a while ago called real-time production optimization. Uh, and we had the hypothesis that we could apply this technology not just to uh, improve production, but actually to decrease CO2. So we've been working with one of our LNG facilities uh, and one algorithm was able to deliver uh, around 70% reduction in boil-off uh, gas associated with flaring, um, which reduced CO2 for that facility uh, at around 130 kilotons per annum, roughly. Um, and so that gives you a real uh, sense of an example of the sort of impact that AI can have on CO2 when it's applied to our own operations. So uh, just a couple of examples of how these mega trends are coming together and how we're trying to make our existing business more effective and efficient and work with customers to accelerate uh, energy transition. But you also see the acceleration in terms of general impact. And I think it's worth just touching on a slide which was rather buried in the appendix of our strategy day presentation, which I thought would be worth bringing to the fore in the context of this conversation. And I want to start on, on the right-hand side with the numbers that are quite small, but are actually really significant. Um, in 2019, we delivered about a billion dollars in bottom line impact from digital technology. That's in terms of lower cost, improved production, uh, improved utilization, reduced downtime and increased margins. Um, and I want to say this is delivered value. I, I see often that with investors, delivered and projected get conflated. Uh, this is delivered value uh, that, that we, have, we have delivered already in 2019. Despite COVID, we doubled that number in 2020. And that's something I'm very proud of. Uh, it shows the acceleration that we see. And it shows sort of some of the things I was able to share with investors uh, previously uh, in some of the conversations that we had, um, you know, these kind of leading indicators, the acceleration of deployment, the increase in data volumes, the acceleration in machine learning model deployment, all of these things we, we now start to see translated into that bottom line impact. And, and hopefully this starts to give uh, the investor community a sense of what's happening in digital uh, shell. And so, you know, just to quote a few other numbers, and I'm just going to update some of these. Uh, so we've gone from 1.3 to 1.7 trillion rows of data in the period that we talked about uh, since strategy day. Um, we've gone from 1.7 million to 2.1 million in terms of customers uh, using the Go Plus loyalty program. Um, we're now over 100 AI-powered applications in production, over 6,000 pieces of equipment being monitored in real time uh, using AI. And so I just give you a sense of that because what I want to give to the audience here is a sense of momentum and a sense of the excitement that we feel around how quickly digital is starting to hit the energy industry and then hopefully how that's going to translate into thriving through energy transition. That's, that's, that's really great color. So, I mean, strategy was three months ago, um, and obviously some of those numbers are increasing quite dramatically. Um, so I guess following on from that, uh, you gave the example about the LNG facility. Um, I wanted to get a sense, a lot, a lot gets talked about 
how digital could impact the old platform in 10, 15, 20 years time. And the one example you gave was was how we're how it is today. So I wanted to focus on today and just get a sense of how things are being done with digital now um, versus how things were done five, five or 10 years ago. And you, I mean, you can touch on wherever you thought, think the lowest hanging fruit is, whether it's exploration, maintenance, you mentioned operations there, but um, yeah, a couple of examples will be useful there. Yeah, and, and, and look, you know, I, I think um, for, for me, what's really important here is, is that um, we have to recognize that um, this is happening everywhere. It's happening in every part of our business. Um, but I think maybe just to zoom in a little bit on, on one other example that I think gives you a sense of how quickly things are changing. Uh, it's an example I like to talk about a lot. So seismic processing, it's kind of one of the most fundamental parts of the industry of, you know, we take uh, seismic data in its rawest form. Uh, we take that through a series of processing steps to generate insight about the subsurface. And, and, you know, there's an analog here, I think, with medical imagery. And you see this happening in the medical sector very, very quickly, where AI and machine learning is starting to transform the way we process CAT scans. And so you can see the same thing happening here. And so, you know, what we've been doing is working on, for example, can we use AI to denoise that data as it comes in? One of the laborious process you have to go through is to take the noise out from the processing to actually get to the signal. And and this can, you know, take historically, you know, many hours and even several weeks to get to the point where we can get denoised data out. And using some AI we've developed, we call Snap, uh, we can actually develop, we can actually demonstrate that we can reduce that cycle time very, very significantly using machine learning. And to give you an idea, this is now being applied everywhere throughout the seismic processing workflow. So these types of AI modules, it's not just in denoising, it's also in things like uh, rapid velocity model building, automated geobody interpretation, trying to identify features like faults or salt. Uh, automatically using machine learning. And to give you an idea of the impact that this is having on the seismic processing workflows, we've seen about a 25% improvement uh, in cycle time uh, using these AI technologies. And, and, and you know, one recent example, we were able to complete a rapid analysis of, of a new opportunity in a large basin with complex imaging requirements in just three months. And I think Ultimately, that resulted in a successful bid that provides a strong uh, addition to our exploration portfolio. Um, but I think it's a great example of how uh, we were able, I question whether using traditional methods, we could have got the level of insight that we had about that play uh, with, without the machine learning. And so I think it's, it's that increased cycle time that we're seeing happening that's really transforming some of these workflows. And I also think we're just getting started. So I think there's a lot more to come uh, in these areas. You talk about pace increasing, uh, and then obviously the additional tools it provides you. Um, I wanted to talk a bit about mindset. So you, you work for a very large corporation, um, and you know I, I also work for a large corporation, and I feel the same thing. If I come up with a really great idea, uh, there'll, be, there'll be five people standing in my way explaining why things are done a certain way, and this is always the way they've been done, and uh, they shouldn't change. So how do you how do you actually get things done? Uh, you know, do you have license from the top to say, digital's the way forward and this, we need to do this, or how, how does that actually work in practice? I want to say, hopefully, 
going back to what I said at the start, you can see how quickly things are changing. So I see a lot of you know positive things happening in that sense. So so certainly I'm extremely positive about some of the changes we are seeing. And I, I've been, but I do want to recognize what you're saying, uh, which I think is really important, which is the fact that if you look at a company like ours, we have to recognize that to be uh, relevant in both energy transition and in digital, we have to change culture. And, and I've been extremely blessed, really, with uh, a team of senior executives that, that got it, that understood this is what had to happen, and gave me, really top down from our executive committee, the opportunity to drive this. So we, back in 2017, basically went about setting out a digital strategy, which created, um, I guess, the space and the, the vision to say, we're going to go after this as a strategic initiative, as something that matters for us at group level, that's going to be key to our future success. And I think what came out of that is really top down, we called them roadmaps, which was um, uh, effectively for different parts of our organization, for, for subsurface and wells, for asset management, for customer centricity, which includes our, our, you know, our new energies business as well, or renewables and energy solutions as it is now. Um, we were trying to make sure that each of those areas had very specific priorities that were very visible at the top, where these great ideas that you talked about could be fed in, and indeed blockers could be removed. So I think that's one element of it, that, that top-down component. But I think there's another element which is often overlooked. And I think we started with a bottoms-up movement as well. So one of the things that we focused on very early was developing a network of change agents. Um, and, and we call, in my area, we call that the Shell.ai community. We now have an equivalent one for, for DIY, which is do-it-yourself software development. And these communities are very much bottoms up, self-help capabilities, where we empower the front line. We give them training through providers like Udacity. We enable them with the tools, things like Power BI, Power Apps, Alteryx, and we enable them to start to develop their own solutions. And to give you an idea of the scale of this thing, um, you know, we've got well over uh, a, a thousand now uh, DIY software engineers and a similar number of uh, DIY data scientists. So it's really quite a significant thing. And all of these folks are coming up with new ideas, seeing problems in their work processes, and being able to just get on with it. They've got the tools, they can solve the problem for themselves, they don't need to call IT, the data's available or it's becoming available as we bring together our, our corporate data landscape. And so that's really accelerating the ideas. And what we're also trying to build alongside that is saying, if we've got a great idea and you now want to replicate and scale that up, we now have an engineering capability within our IT function that can help us to accelerate the development of those ideas. So it's really both a top-down push, these are the big priorities from, from the senior level, as well as a bottom-up movement, which is bringing that together, which is driving uh, that cultural change. And I think the, the other thing that I've been um, uh, you know, really benefited from is a huge openness. You know, our, our senior executives want to know how can I be more digitally savvy as a leader? How can I help and enable this within my workforce? And I think that's extremely powerful. Just a, just a quick follow-up on that, but um, if you have a really great idea and you have the data and you have the solution and it's a global issue that you, you find a solution for, how long would it take, uh, I know there's probably not one answer for this, but you know, roughly speaking, how long does it take to implement something that you've found a problem, solution for? Yeah, great question. So, I mean, 
we 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 talk in terms of what we call minimum viable products so often what happens is someone's built a, an initial prototype and they come to us and say hey we want to turn this into a globally replicable product i have this mantra which is think think big start small learn fast and so i think the key thing is what what we often try and do is lay out uh the total aspiration for this product um and then effectively also be very clear of what is the what is the minimum thing we can deploy to deliver valuable functionality to the end users today and then how can we learn and scale that fast towards that that end vision and so that's very much the mantra that we're using um typically our cycle time is somewhere between six weeks and three months um we've done better than that we've done worse than that as you rightly point out but the idea is ideally we're trying to deliver mvps in kind of that six weeks to three months cycle time and that might not be it's it's quite challenging to do that because you get into a, a mentality whereby um you know you're, you're deploying stuff that ain't great to the customer right and i'm just being honest about that and this is the cultural difference is that that has to be okay because what you're going to what you're going to have is you're exposing your work to the customer they're going to tell you that it's rubbish and they're going to tell you what you need to do to make it better and that rapid learning that i was talking about follows from that, which gives you a much faster cycle time and gets you to the point of having something valuable more quickly. And it gets away from the alternative, which is wait six months, give it to the customer and realize it's not what they want. I think there's probably a lesson about writing a research report in there as well on that waiting <laughs> six months. But um, I, I wanted to focus uh, or hone in on uh, opportunities because uh, and maybe not costs, also revenues. Um, and we can go go through a couple of divisions, but maybe um, starting with marketing, uh, you have a huge customer footprint um, and often it's the Starbucks plus McDonald's plus a bit more in terms of customers, uh, example is used, but um, big loyalty scheme. Can you talk about when Shell actually started to use data in that business, where you are yeah. in that journey and yeah. what are the, some, of, some of the surprises that have, have come out of it? So funnily, I have a history in this space. So one of my previous jobs was running the landscape that, uh, that, that, that actually generates all of the customer offers for us. And I think we've got a fairly long heritage in doing this. I mean, as you know, you know Shell's had a driver's club loyalty program for a, several decades, I think. Don't, not sure exactly when it started, but it's certainly been around a long time. And so to a certain extent, we've, we've used data in that space, uh, you know, almost for, from, from the get-go. Um, and I think that's true almost everywhere in Shell. I mean, our statistics team dates from the 1970s. And I think the benefit that I've always had coming into this space is the fact that I very much build on the shoulders of what's gone before. And at the same time, of course, the opportunity that you have with digital, particularly when you talk about things like having a mobile app with users interacting with you in real time gives you a whole new opportunity in terms of generating customer insight. And I want to start with something which is really important, which is we thought long and hard before we started down this road about what are the lines we're not going to cross. Because I think you have to be very careful in dealing with customers' data, not only that you follow the law, which is obviously critical, but, but that you also make sure that ethically you're comfortable with the way in which you're using that data. So we've been very targeted in how we wanted to do this. And really the focus of this is giving customers a fantastic experience of Shell. That's been the vision of what we're trying to do. So we're trying to enhance the customer's experience using data and AI. Um, and the Go Plus loyalty program is a great example of that. So, so what is it and why is it different? 
at the core of the Go Plus loyalty program is, is two things. One, it has a, a capability which is around uh, effectively uh, providing visit-based loyalty. So the more you visit Shell and the more you do with Shell, you'll be rewarded for that. But it also has this, this beautiful random function, which is if you've ever interacted with the Go Plus loyalty scheme, you'll suddenly get stuff you didn't expect. So the whole system will provide you with something which we believe you will like. Um, if you don't like it, which means you don't respond to it or you don't look at it, the system also learns from that. And so effectively what we're doing is we're trying to say, what do you want from us? We're going to experiment. We're going to give you things that you might be interested in. And then we're going to learn from that using data. And hopefully that enhances your experience of, of work, of, you know, visiting a shell station um and i mean you know it seems to be working as i mentioned uh you know th there's a huge take up for this um as i think i mentioned earlier on it's around now uh, i think 41 million digital rewards issued around 2.1 million customers using this and that's just in the uk by the way but i think what's really important as well is that we've taken that concept uh, and the core of that concept and we're now trying to extend that to other markets so it's not the same because Customers in other countries are not the same, but the core engine, the piece that, of AI that we've generated behind the hood, we're now rolling out to other markets. And so, you know, we see that not only can you, you can build something like this once, you can build the underlying technology, the data analytics, the frameworks, and then just like we talked about in some of the other areas, you can then start to roll this out. And the beauty of digital is if you get it right and you build the data models right and you build the platforms right, it can scale very, very quickly. And so you know, we're going through multiple market rollouts this year of that underlying AI technology because we've built it to scale. Can we talk about, uh, again, going back to sort of ways of working. So what we see now more than ever you know, across the energy industry and other industries is, is alliances. Alliances, you know, shipping, aviation, um, hydrogen, everything. Um, in most cases, actually, you see a company like Shell, you are one of your peers with a couple from industry or uh, independent companies. Um, and you have partnerships with uh, the various tech firms out there, Microsoft, Google, et cetera. So can you talk about the, the role of these alliances and, and, and you know, what exactly do you bring uh, to, to them? Love the question. One of my favorite topics. So uh, you, have to, you may have to uh, rein me in on this one. But uh, look, I think... You know, in every part of our business, it's built on partnerships. I mean, I talked to just talked about the loyalty program. You know, one of the opportunities in a loyalty program is, of course, and this is not new to Shell, but not new to anyone else, but actually to bring in other offers in an integrated way uh, and to start to accelerate that. So across the, you know, nine or so markets that we're planning to roll out, that offers strategy is key. But in those relationships that we have with, uh, with, with, those other companies. What's interesting is the dynamics of those relationships in the mega trends I talked about earlier on in energy transition is changing. And, and what I mean by that is if you're a consumer goods manufacturer, or if you're a cement producer, or if you're a, uh, you know, a steel producer, your business needs to change very, very dramatically uh, in the next few years. And, and actually, these deep relationships that we've built up through our traditional businesses means that often these customers are coming to us for help. And often the place where that starts is digital. So I just want to link this back to the overall strategy, which is 
these it's not only about partnerships it's also about customers and i think maybe it, it's it's only fair to start with the microsoft relationship which i think is is one that has been very public and you know it's very visible for sure and it's been certainly something i've been very heavily involved in but the if you think about what we're trying to do with microsoft it's really about three things it's about you know us deepening our relationship with them for sure in the digital space that's in terms of innovation and in terms of cloud services but it's also about Microsoft becoming a customer of Shell, buying renewable power, uh, buying uh, carbon offsets, working with us in carbon capture and storage and becoming a customer of the Northern Lights program. So it's really a, a deepening of the relationship where both energy transition, digital and traditional business models all become very fundamental. And so you ask, what do we bring? Well, I think I think what we bring is a few things. I think we bring, firstly, a very deep knowledge of the energy industry. Secondly, I think we bring a unique capability, which is that combined with, I think, a sizable, incredible, uh, and capable AI team, which can work on some of these really tough problems and translate those traditional capabilities into digital products. Um, and I think as a result, what we're trying to do is to find effective partnerships where we can also build on other strengths. So the example with with a Microsoft is, you know, they bring a very very robust software engineering and cloud framework which we can build on top of, and it allows us to accelerate the development of our own solutions. Um, and so, you know, what we're trying to do really is work uh, with many of these uh, partners and customers to to figure out joint opportunities in the digital space where we can accelerate things. Another example, uh, you know. Working with Consberg, um, as you probably know, we've been working hard on trying to reduce the uh, CO2 footprint from our vessels. And we developed a technology called JAWS, which we showed can reduce uh, CO2 emissions by about 7% on our own ships. And we've licensed that now to Consberg, who are now helping to accelerate uh, the development of that technology and take it to market. And that's very exciting because it means it accelerates the deployment of our ships, it accelerates the learning cycle, um, it has a CO2 impact, it generates licensing revenue, and it also builds a deeper relationship with Consberg, which, which touches many parts of our organization. One more example, uh, you may have seen something which we, we talked about recently, the OAI, the Open AI Energy Initiative with uh, Baker Hughes, Microsoft, and C3. Another classic example, you know, we're now, I talked about the vast volumes of, of sensor data that we have and the predictive maintenance algorithms which we've deployed now to over 6,000 pieces of equipment. And I think the point about that is what do we bring? We bring that data. Nobody else has got you know, an aggregated data store outside of other operators perhaps, which can tell you how your machines work in context holistically. And if we can do that and then train machine learning models on top of that to provide real-time insights, that's pretty unique. And, and obviously partnering there, we can accelerate the development of predictive maintenance more broadly across the industry, which has huge benefits, uh, not just for us, but, but also for partners, uh, also for joint ventures. And of course, again, there's licensing revenue for Shell in that if we're licensing that technology to C3, which we, which we now are through the OAI. So I, I just give you some examples of some of the things that we're thinking about and how these business models and partnering models are evolving. But also, I hope I convey a sense of excitement because days, but I think you can see the potential in this and the capability that we have within Shell to actually be highly relevant in this space.
So I guess in a, in a very simple sense, um, you know, the, in the digital revolution, uh, there's a huge uh, advantage of scale here because more data, more feedback, more learning, uh, and so on and so forth. And that's where the more data you have, you should benefit, I'm assuming. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I think the key thing, Raj, is, is that if you look at what Shell has, you know, we have a phenomenal global footprint, which leads to, you know, phenomenal insight. And in, in a data-centric digital world, you know, very few people have the level of insight about the physical operation of the energy system that we have. And if we can turn that into a digital asset, uh, it's, it's a huge business opportunity for us. And just sticking, sticking with the sort of alliances question, um, is there a significant difference in the way you and your team work versus uh, the data team or AI team at Microsoft or Google would work? What's really important is we want to learn from them. Um, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm not going to claim that that we're, uh, you know, necessarily better than them. I think they learn things from us about the energy industry, but we certainly learn things from them because, you know, they're dealing, you know, take a, you know, a Microsoft, you know, they're dealing with vast, vast amounts of data in, you know, the Azure platform, in, in the SharePoint environments, in, you know, some of the things we, they do with Bing. Um, that's not something we're familiar with, right? Not not that scale of global data. Not the you know we don't ingest the whole world wide web and try and run machine learning on it. Whereas Microsoft do, and I think you know there's there's things we learn from them about how we can unlock that data asset that that we have. And so you know I think what's great, and this is what I've really enjoyed about the the, the Microsoft relationship in particular, is that it's it's a partnership. You know we we work together with them every day. We're working on innovation ideas with them every day. We're leveraging their expertise to help us accelerate our development. Um, and I think that's also core to their philosophy, which is great. And so. You know, I think I think it's it's a win-win actually, um, and of course, what we help is they understand the energy system better, and they need to understand the energy system better because they're also trying to decarbonize. Yeah, also big energy consumers. Um, so I'm going to ask one more question, um, but uh, and then we can open up to the the audience. If you do have a question, please do uh, submit it, and we'll try and get to them. Um, so my last question would be around skills and recruitment. Um, so when you're hiring uh, these AI engineers or da data scientists, there, there's presumably more demand than supply, I'm assuming at this point. Um, so, so what is your pro proposition to get one of these young, bright graduates to work for a fossil fuel company? <laughs> I, I love the question. Well, well the, first, the first thing you have to overcome is, is say that we're, you know, we're an energy company. And I think that's a really important point, which is you know, at the end of the day, to your point, um, you know, one of the propositions that we offer is Shell is trying to lead through the energy transition. And we believe that digital uh, is a part of that. And now that might sound trite, but actually it's really important in recruitment because, you know, when it comes down to it, these people want to make a difference. They, they want to be a part of solving the problem. And I think it's not for everybody, but for people who maybe are a bit like me, I fundamentally believe, and one of the reasons I work for Shell is I believe that what I do can have a material impact on the energy system. And so it starts with that unique purpose. You know, can we use digital technology to transform the energy system? And, and actually, I find that people find that very motivating because they, they get it that Shell, if we can make this change happen, we can have a material impact, not just, you know, uh, on Shell, but global. And I think that is motivating for people. 
I think the other thing is, you know, it comes down to culture. You know, we work very hard on the culture we create. We try and model the culture. Uh, I mean, you can probably tell that I, I'm not the conventional person in in terms of, uh, you know, the way that I, I that I do things. I, I really try and focus on, you know, embracing digital culture and bringing that into Shell and trying to make sure that we are uh, bringing the sort of technical uh, environment, technology environment in the digital space that they expect. So that's another key element. Um, and that goes to things like, you know, dress code and office environment when we had offices, but also, uh, you know, the way we manage code, you know, all of those kind of things become very, very important because there's an expectation from these people we're trying to recruit about what good looks like. I think the final thing is also, it's about leveraging the assets that we have. So not everything's going to be solved through recruitment. And we focus very hard on the reskilling aspect of things. So we focused really on trying to say, look, you know, we want to also take some of the fantastic technical knowledge we have with deep industry experience and make that relevant uh, in, in the, you know, through energy transition, but also to this digital world. And so we've worked with, I mentioned Udacity, we've worked on targeted reskilling programs. We've also developed you know, DIY data scientist programs to help people who are in the business to generate these new skills and to start potentially a new career path, which I think is, is really, really exciting. Um, I guess I'll say one final thing, which is the other thing is flexibility. Um, you know, we've developed unique programs, which are, not not conventional so for example the ai residency program is a two-year fixed-term contract with shell because we recognize that not everyone wants to stay with one company the rest of their life anymore they want to be able to come particularly as a data scientist experience new problems learn and then potentially they may want to go somewhere else obviously we'd like some of them to stay but we're also okay if they want to say i'll do two years and then then i'll move on and so i think some of this thinking of trying to be do things perhaps a little bit differently to, to, to provide different employee value propositions to a different type of person um, has been really important and, and part of why I think we've managed to build a strong capability so far. No, that's, all, that's all very clear. Um, so I've got a couple of questions that come in by, by email. Um, the first one is, um, could you talk about blockchain and its role uh, or uses in, in what you do and whether it is useful and uh, just some more details around that. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, let me let me start by saying, uh, you know, just like with AI in, in blockchain, I think we started pretty early. Um, I, I will say I'm 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 not the blockchain expert, but I I know it a bit, and so I'm happy to talk about it a little bit. I think you know one of the things that we've been trying to develop uh, in the blockchain space is we've been trying to think about. Um, where is it going to apply and where is it going to disrupt traditional ways of doing things? The, the tough thing is that crypto is obviously transforming the world. Um, uh, and yesterday, people's bank balances as well. But anyway, I think the key point is that, you know, you have to recognize that um, it's there's been a killer use case in crypto, but we expect the blockchain is going to go way beyond that. Um, but I think it's also to say it's been a nascent technology and it's now only, I think, really just coming of age. Um, a couple of things. I mean, I think, you know, we've had a number of people recognized uh, through through the contributions they've made. Um, you know, Sabine Brink has been really leading a lot of the dialogue in this space for uh, a shell. And if you haven't looked her up and you want to know more, look up Sabine Brink and have a look at some of the things she's putting out there. Um, what I would say is a couple of areas where we have focused. One is... Um, trying to look at spare part provenance. Um, it's a great use case. If you look at some of the problems, and, and at, 
I'll use this as an example of where I think blockchain is going to really disrupt. Um, if you think about uh, where blockchain helps, it's often in cross business plays. So where you have multiple different players who need some sort of authentication, but also some sort of confidentiality in the process. And spare parts is a great example of that, because for those that aren't familiar, we have these spare parts on the shelves, they need to be maintained, they need to be certified. In many cases, they need to go back to the manufacturer to, to ensure that they're appropriately certified before they're deployed into the production environment. And all of that can get very, very messy in the supply chain. And historically, you had whole, uh, you know, documents uh, being passed back and forwards with long service histories on spare parts. And if you can put all of that uh, on the blockchain, uh, it can make, you know, make a huge impact in making that whole process much more effective and efficient. I think the other one that, that I'm really excited about, um, which I think is going to be the next generation of blockchain, is low carbon energy pro product tracking. So it's a perfect use case for blockchain, which is can you understand the provenance of a particular energy product uh, through the whole life cycle. Same, if you, take the, if you take the spare part analogy and you link it to an analog, it's actually the same problem. You've got multiple different parties involved in the value chain of creating a energy product. And actually, as a consumer or as a customer, you want to know that what you're getting is green, and that's going to be an increasing pressure. And so looking at how blockchain can help enable that through the value chain is going to be really, really important. So those are just a, a couple of examples. Um, and I think, you know, one area that we're looking at in just initial focus for that uh, sustainability use case is, is you know, sustainable fuels in the transport sector. I think it's a great example of how you could envisage this being applied. So lots of excitement. I think lots more to come in that space, but certainly a key area of focus for us and one that we're investing in. Yeah, I mean, I can see it uh, being utilized quite heavily in carbon offsets um, because, you know, if you sell an LG cargo and the customer offsets it or you offset it and sell it to the customer, you know, there's going to have to be some kind of tracking system uh, to make sure there's no double counting, right, in the system. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. So the next question, um, I mean, this was a little bit difficult to answer because you talked about cycle time being much shorter, but... Looking on a, on a five-year view, uh, most impactful technology improvement you can see today on, on the business? It's a great question. Um, obviously, this is sort of slightly speculative, as you can imagine, in, in that it's more about, it's more about uh, what I'm most excited about rather than a forward-looking view. So I need to be clear on that one. But, but I think you know, where I'm excited is optimization. Um, if you look at the last generation of technologies, optimization has shaped the energy industry, whether that be, you know, in, in refinery planning, whether that be in supply chain management, we've seen huge gains from optimization. What we see with the next generation of technology with things like deep reinforcement learning as an example of that um, is we can see that, you know, deep RL is going to really make a huge impact um, in terms of, uh, and it already is in things like autonomous vehicles and, and the ability to um, optimize using those sorts of technologies, I think will take the whole optimization approach to the next level. And, and you know, an example is autonomous operations. You know, to a certain extent, many of operations today are, are automatic, but there's many challenges to making them fully autonomous in, in many areas. And I think we'll see some of these technologies, some of these uh, you know, new advanced methods starting to make it possible to do more things autonomously. 
The other one I think that I'm really excited about is digital twin. So, you know, the vast array of sensor data that we're now aggregating in an integrated way together with, you know, digital PNIDs and three-dimensional scans of the assets is really starting to give you a real-time picture of what's actually happening on any given facility. And, and you know, we've seen that, if you're gonna, if you, want to go on the website there's an example we published around Nihamna around how we've already done that um, and we th see that accelerating very very quickly now this is where it gets a bit mind-bending if you think about that if you have a real-time picture of the asset at all times uh, consistently and accurately you can actually start to simulate you can start to model you can start to predict you can start to create outliers you can effectively do in the virtual world all of the the what if questions that you want to ask um, and that will provide a new level of insight around the operations so and then if you combine that with what i said about optimization those two things coming together uh, again will move the needle even further so i think that's the area that i'm most excited about right now and you can probably tell <laughs> Definitely. Um, so just, just to follow up on that, Digital Twin, how widely used is that today? And how many examples do you have? It's pretty broad. I, I think, I mean, um, uh, off the top of my head, I mean, we, so we, we've said we're rolling this out globally. Um, so we started with Nihamna and we've, we've partnered with Konsberg and we're in the middle uh, of a global rollout. Um, the plan is, uh, you know, to, to do that over the next few years. But to give you an idea, we've got about three deployments live right now, um, and that's accelerating really fast. Um, but, but as I said, it's a, it's a global program, and we'll be going asset by asset over the next uh, over the next few few months and years. Right, right. So I've got one one last question, and and you brought this on yourself uh, in your initial comments because you talked about two billion dollars delivered. Um, so can you talk about a projection? Can you talk about the potential <laughs> for digital uh, going forward? How how significant could this be? I I, I, I don't even have to try it. But you know what I'm going to say. I mean, look, what what I'm trying to do is find a way of uh, giving enough of a sense of what's happening to the market by leading indicators, understanding the acceleration, and understanding the trajectory as you've seen from the one to two billion. I think. Um, you know what we see is those those indicators give you an impression of what's happening within Shell, but I'm not going to give you know any sort of projection uh, go forwards. Um, but but hopefully you can share my excitement over what's been delivered. Yeah, I, I had to ask as soon as you mentioned it, I was thinking about it. But um, no, that, that that's great, and this was a fantastic, really insightful conversation. Obviously, there's a lot going on, uh, very fast-paced environment, and. Uh, yeah, you're going to be busy in the next few years. So thank you very much for for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Great. So the next session uh, we're going to host um, as part of this series is actually going to be on uh, the insurance sector. So effectively, you know, how do you price in, in climate change risk and things like that. So that will be uh, in your inboxes soon. But thank you all for joining us today. This has been an RBC Capital Markets production. To hear more from RBC Capital Markets, you can subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Amazon, or visit our website, rbccm.com. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. 
It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.